Hi there, and welcome to the last episode of Pop Enlightenment Season 2, in association with the Centre for Enlightenment Studies at King's College London and with the British Society for 18th Century Studies. Over the last 15 episodes, we've been discussing pop cultural representations of the 18th century, and it still feels like we've barely scratched the surface of what's going on in all these films, TV shows, games, and what have you. For those of you just joining us, I'm Dr Emerus Jones, Senior Lecturer in 18th Century Literature and Culture at King's College London. As with the last episode's discussion of 18th century music on screen, I'm joined for this episode by Dr Brianna Robertson-Kirkland, Lecturer in Historical Musicology at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland and Research Associate at the University of Glasgow. Right, so in our last episode we thought about the use and portrayal of music quite broadly, but I thought it would be great if we could dedicate this episode to a particular aspect of 18th century musical culture that has always prompted fascination and scandal from that time to our own. I'm talking about the castrati, men castrated shortly before puberty, whose high singing voices and imposing physical figures became staples of the 18th century opera and of early celebrity culture. It's sometimes difficult for us to get our heads around this barbaric convention and what it must have meant both for the 18th century's music and for its ideas of masculinity. But then again, I guess the culture represented by the castrati was in many respects just as strange and provocative for 18th century audiences themselves particularly in Britain, where they were received as exotic foreign imports, pretty much exclusively coming from Italy. Does that fit with your understanding of the castrati, Brianna? I know that you've been working a fair bit on this subject for a forthcoming book. Yes, so uh, I've been working on the castrati for quite a while. My thesis was based on the castrati and now I have the fortunate opportunity of, of writing a monograph for uh, Routledge. So, What's interesting about the castrati is that we're talking here primarily about singing castrati, which were exclusive of Italy. They were a phenomenon that occurred round about the uh, end of the 15th century, beginning of the 16th century, when the Pope allowed castrati to be part of papal choirs. And from that point on, they really became into that idea of what we have of the 18th century operatic castrato. Mm-hmm. Uh, Prior to that, castrati did exist, they were called eunuchs, um, Mm. but they tended to be men who were castrated post-puberty and they would take positions in royal households or positions in politics because they were thought to have been safer or being in positions of authority because they didn't have any claim to uh, any kind of hierarchy or being able to sire sons who would this is very much the Game of Thrones view of the, the political eunuch, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. So we have uh, Varus in that perfect position where he doesn't have any sons to sire, but he's definitely up high into those political workings in the inner body mm. of what's going on in the Game of Thrones until mm-hmm. his unfortunate end. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but the singing castrati is what we're focusing on here, and the singing castrati became those very celebrated and exotic creatures uh, that were sent to all over Western Europe, really. They were performing in France, they were performing in London, performing all over Italy and in Germany. Mm. And they really inspired that type of virtuosic music making that we really associate with the 18th century today. And I mean, I guess you can see, I've already mentioned, and, and you have mentioned that this kind of celebrity surrounding them, something that you can also see as evident in in the way that they become known by the the most successful castrati by single names, Farinelli, Senesino, almost kind of like Madonna or Prince or or someone in in modern uh, musical pop culture. But I'm wondering, 
why and how then they become quite so celebrated? Is it just the uniqueness of their voices? Were their voices so incredible as to guarantee for them this immediate celebrity wherever they went? Well, this is one of the biggest debates in musicology, where the voices of the castrati did they exist purely because of the operation, or was it something else that contributed? And I certainly go with the theory that the castrati did have incredibly unique voices because of how they were constructed, which they mm -hmm. can only exist through this barbaric operation. But at the same time, every single boy who was castrated for the purposes of singing underwent intensive musical training mm. to the point where they were excellent sight readers, excellent composers, could sing incredibly virtuosic music. And even those castrati who did not go on to become successful, celebrated opera stars who were bringing in those mass amounts of money, they did go on to have musical careers in conservatories mm. or in the church, and they would make their way as a musician. So they basically committed to a life of a musician once they were castrated. And then part of the capacity of the castrato, part of what they are claimed for is, is moving between male parts and, and female parts as well. Is that right in, in the operas that they are performing? Yeah, so in the opera, what the castrati can do, and this is where our impression of masculinity and femininity becomes skewed. So in the 18th century, a man or a woman could play a man or a woman. A gender didn't really matter in mm. terms of representation of what's going on in the stage. What mattered was the voice. So it hierarchy in Italian operas, um, particularly if they were performed in London, is that you have the soprano voice as the highest. Doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman, it's just got to be on top. Mm. The castrato did trump a woman um, because he was kind of in this in-between image of a man or a woman. Mm. Um, so he did tend to come above a woman, but he could play a female or a male role. In absence of a castrato, and what Handel did quite a lot, he could be substituted for an alto, and that's a female alto. Mm -hmm. So she could play a leading male role, but she's a female alto. And that, they would do that rather than dropping the role to be a tenor, which is sometimes what you would see in modern representations mm -hmm. of these early operas. Um, and they certainly wouldn't put a countertenor in the role because the countertenor counter voice was seen to be a fake voice. Um, so it, it wasn't very appealing to an 18th century audience. I mean, that I find quite intriguing in itself, ideas of, of fakeness um, attached to the countertenor's voice rather than the, the castrato, who you would, would think in, in some ways would be less authentic. But I, I understand from, from what you've said that in, in a sense it is seen as the most authentic, that it's, it's seen as preserving the purity, I guess, of the young boy's singing voice into adulthood and, and is thus the more authentic, more legitimate voice. Yeah, so it's like the hierarchy of the sound. So because the sound is higher, that therefore makes it better. And we also have the difference between a countertenor who's only singing with a very small portion of his voice. So he's mm -hmm. restricting the amount of voice that he's singing with to be able to sing these high notes, which tended to be described as feigned in the 18th century. Whereas a castrato, he has full access to his entire range. He's not faking anything and he's not restricting anything. So that is deemed in the 18th century to be the more desirable sound. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly the one that's considered more exotic and more desirable in London. I mean, speaking of desirable then, we've already touched on this issue of the sex appeal of the castrato. And that does seem so paradoxical, really, that a castrated man should 
become, as as certainly Farinelli seemed to, various of, of these figures seem to, such a, an object of sexual attraction and fascination, certainly in the way that they're being written about at the time, even if not necessarily in, in terms of having actual sexual encounters. But why why do you think that's the case? How do we square that circle of the kind of the impotent man being seen as the most attractive figure in celebrity culture of the time? So there's a few things that are happening in the 18th century. First of all, you have uh, the contraception isn't really a thing that can be guaranteed in the 18th century. So women are very restricted in their roles, whereas castrati, whether they can perform or not, which is also in debate, uh, they're deemed to be safe. You can have mm. a relationship with them, even a sexual relationship with them, that's not going to result in pregnancy. So no one's going to really know about it unless you're caught in the physical act. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly a lot of the fear that's happening in the 18th century with, in, with regards to an attack on masculinity, is that mm -hmm. these castrati can come in and take your, your woman away mm -hmm. and do things with her and no one is going to know. <laughs> the other thing that's happening is that castrati, as a result of the operation, they do grow to be incredibly tall, they do look quite imposing, but their facial features maintain that youthful look because they don't have any facial hair, their skin tends to be described as uh, quite translucent, and certainly a lot of images of castrati that uh, portray them in a much more realistic way show them to be quite beautiful in a way, mm. quite feminine in a way. Um, whereas you get also those grotesque caricatures of them that are depicting them as quite vulgar and monstrous. So somewhere is probably the in-between of what the castrato actually looked like. So they look very odd, but they all perhaps also have an allure about them as well. Okay, well, it's interesting to think about how the various issues we've raised so far come into play in modern pop cultural representations of the castrato. For the purposes of our discussion today, I thought we'd focus on a few different pop cultural artefacts. The first being Gérard Corbiot's 1994 film Farinelli. This movie in French and Italian presents a rather speculative and arguably, I mean, it's pretty prurient version of its title character's life, showing his ascent to fame and fortune and his various sexual conquests facilitated very literally by his brother Riccardo Broschi. The film features various musical scenes with the peculiarity of Farinelli's singing voice recreated by merging recordings of a female soprano and a male countertenor. Brianna, do you think the film is successful in conveying the experience of an 18th century castrato, not to mention the, the experience of listening to one? They certainly in the film portray what we understand to be a very sensationalised experience of a castrato. So they are picking out moments of Farinelli's life which are spread quite widely anecdotically. So we have that scene where he's competing with the trumpet. This is repeated mm. in scholarly literature and it's also repeated in other literature quite widely where Farinelli is competing with this trumpet. Um, we also get representations of him on stage where he's looking very luxurious. And then you kind of have these odd storylines of Farinelli going off with women here left, right and centre, which is mm. counter to what we understand of his life and what his lifestyle uh, in real life. So... Because he was a more reclusive figure, if anything, wasn't... Although although I suppose it is in keeping with, 
what people speculated about him at the time, the sort of scandalous satires that people would write about him and, and just strange, fantastical scenarios that people would dream up. Exactly. So actually, Farinelli, at the end of his career, um, which he chose to leave the stage and he went into politics, and then he, he lived quite a reclusive life and he lived a very luxurious life, but um, it wasn't as if he was running off with women thereafter. That seems to be something that was picked up by the media and used mm -hmm. to uh, create this kind of celebrity lifestyle surrounding the image of Farinelli. Mm -hmm. I mean, the narrative for this film very much hinges on this kind of sexual partnership, but also rivalry that develops between Farinelli and his brother. A another aspect that I'm not sure really has that much basis in, in historical reality. It occurs to me that the gothic aspects of that plot, setting up this kind of rivalry and betrayal between brothers, are quite reminiscent of Anne Rice's 1982 novel, Cry to Heaven, which essentially takes the lives of Castrati as the basis for an Oedipal revenge narrative. I wonder if both of these have in common a kind of interest in the castrato as monstrous, basically. And, and Anne Rice is obviously very famous for writing vampire fiction first and foremost. Whether she is maybe drawn to the, the castrati for the same reason that Corbiot is in his film, as a site for fantastical speculation and the very implausibility of some of these escapades being what interests filmmakers and novelists in this particular topic. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the castrati, just as much in the 18th century as is today, they are fascinating creatures that we just don't know that much about simply because of the thing that was affected. So no one's necessarily going to talk about what works, what doesn't work, what's there, and yet we're attracted to Know, or knowing or finding out more about what might have been going on. And in a way, the, the inability then to father children is itself kind of inspiration to create strange family psychodramas with what family there is there and sort of quasi-incestuous plots in, in both of these. Exactly. In fact, you even have similar plots that are happening in the 18th century itself. So Tenducci, who's a real castrato, and he was the only castrato who was married to a woman. It was very quickly annulled because <laughs> castrati were not allowed to marry women, but he, mm. he did. And this woman had a child, and he claimed that he was the father of that child because he said that two of his testicles had been removed, but he had a secret third one. Oh my goodness, okay. Now, <laughs> of course, that couldn't happen. Medically, that cannot happen, because if he did have this, he wouldn't have had the voice that he had, and he certainly wouldn't have looked the way that he did. Um, what's more likely to have happened is that his wife, uh, either by his knowledge or not, ha had a child by another man. And that's certainly the topic of Helen Berry's book, uh, The Castrato and His Wife, mm -hmm. uh, which she had written just a few years ago. So again, it's just it's opportunities for speculation and kind of whispers and rumours that surround this whole strange phenomenon, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I, I a few years ago um, suddenly enjoyed seeing a, a play which I reported on for uh, the critics' website, Farinelli and the King, at, uh, at Shakespeare's Globe, uh, which was written by Claire Van Campen and starred her husband Mark Rylance in the role of King Philip V of Spain, who ends up hosting Farinelli for a good amount of time um, at the Spanish court. And suddenly, at least in terms of the play, uh, this narrative shows a certain common ground, a spiritual 
uh, emotional understanding developing between these two men. But that struck me as, as taking such a, a different perspective to the other takes on Farinelli that we've seen. It was really a relatively sombre approach and serious approach to what it must be like to be in the spotlight in that way. Um, and did include a rather nice line, I think, uh, kind of reflecting on his celebrity status. He, he's asked kind of um, if he enjoys being Farinelli. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. And um, he says, well, Farinelli is famous. I am not Farinelli is, is the implication of, of his discussion. So really the sense of distance between the, the figure who's there up on stage being consumed and being speculated about by these various audiences and kind of the, the living tragedy of being in, in that situation. Okay, well, moving on from Farinelli in particular, the other pop cultural depiction of a supposed castrato that I'd like us just briefly to consider today is from the BBC's 2005 series Casanova. With David Tennant in the title role, that show derived particular inspiration from the real-life Casanova's dalliance with the supposed castrato Bellino, played here by Nina Sosanya. And if the casting doesn't give away the twist, I can confirm that yes, this Bellino, much as in Casanova's original memoirs, ultimately proves to be a woman in disguise. Brianna, how does the portrayal of a fake castrato in this case parallel or tie in with portrayals of real castrati that we've already talked about. So this portrayal that's happening in uh, this episode is particularly fascinating because one, we do have an account of this from Casanova's memoirs where he claims that this really did happen. And in fact, as I was watching the episode and in 2005, I was much younger than I, <laughs> than I am now. And uh, I actually had the same argument that with my mother as the characters were having on screen. Because Casanova is insisting, that's a girl, that's a girl yes. throughout, isn't so it? I could hear that that was a, a countertenor voice. And I was saying to my mother, that's a countertenor, that must be a man. <laughs> and she was saying, no, that's a woman, that's an actress. Like, I know the actress. So mm. we're having this argument <laughs> and then on screen they're saying, that's a girl. No, it's, not. It's, a, it's a nice it's a inversion, actually, of the, the plot of the episode, isn't it? Exactly. Um, and an interesting choice that they should use a countertenor then, kind of cutting against actually what they're doing with the plot of uh, casting a female actress there and eventually having um, all of Casanova's suspicions about this character confirmed. Exactly. I guess it also ties into what we've said about the sexual appeal of the castrato in some interesting ways. and. And maybe brings us back to the question of masculinity and the castrato in the 18th century, because Casanova's masculinity as it's portrayed by David Tennant in that series, although I think Russell T. Davis in writing the character kind of wants to show him as a relatively open-minded character, there, there definitely is a sense that his masculinity is ultimately bolstered by discovering that his attraction to this Bellino character can be explained within what I guess is quite a modern 21st century understanding of heterosexuality. And I'm interested in, in how you think that might line up with or, or cut against actually the ways that 18th century castrati were or were not understood as being masculine or, or being threats or otherwise to ideas of masculinity. Well, certainly what's happening uh, in the early 18th century is that they're a threat to masculinity because 
they can have this hidden relationship with a woman. And so a lot of the satire and a lot of the caricature is because of that threat. Whereas any other kind of threat that is somehow uh, taking down masculinity or somehow mm. men are going to be uh, attracted, there's not that real sense of that coming mm. out. And it might not be because it wasn't discussed, but it's just not a real feature of what's mm. happening during the period, or it's certainly not being portrayed in the media during the period. So there is this kind of duality where the castrato is at one point seen as the sexless creature, and certainly in the 17th century, in Monteverdi's operas, eh, the castrato tends to play eh, gods or godlike roles or sexless roles or angels, mm. eh, things that are depicted as being sexless. And then by the 18th century, they moved into this kind of hypersexual where they're always playing the romantic mm. leads. Uh, so there is that kind of transition of the castrato moving into a more hypersexed um, version. And that goes alongside the, the growth in celebrity culture and celebrity watching that happens in the 18th mm. century. But seemingly then without too many obvious repercussions for how men are, are seeing themselves, besides the, the threat that you mentioned of of the castrati stealing away their women, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Well, this has been a fascinating insight, both into the historical facts of the castrati and their pop cultural representation. I'm sure there are many facets of all of these sources that we haven't touched upon, but lots to think about. Many thanks again for joining me, Brianna, and I hope you'll contribute to the podcast again in the future. But for now, this draws to a close our current season of Pop Enlightenments. I'd like to thank Lexi Bowman for technical support on the podcast. Our intro and outro music has been 9 to 5 by Scomba featuring Audio Technica. If you have any comments or questions concerning the podcast, please do leave a comment on our SoundCloud page or contact me on Twitter at, at Jones. But for now, many thanks for listening.